As we've mentioned already earlier in our worship service, this is the second Sunday of Advent. But on occasion, as a matter of fact, at least every year, someone in our congregation will come and ask questions about Advent, uh, questions that relate to it not being a tradition that they grew up with. Some people are quite well familiar with the tradition of Advent. Others are not so much familiar, even with the lighting of Advent candles. So what is Advent all about? It's a good reminder. We remind ourselves of it every year. You'll see on the table that's there, there's four candles representing faith, hope, love, and joy. Those candles are representative of uh, the variety of things that we think of when we think of Jesus Christ and His coming. I said faith, I should have included peace instead. We hope for the coming of Christ once again in the second advent. We recognize the love especially and celebrate that today on this second Sunday of Advent. We anticipate the peace that will come when he establishes his reign completely. In the middle of those four candles, you also see a white candle, which is the Christ candle. And most of the time, in traditions like ours and others, the Christ candle is either lit on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, if you have a Christmas Day service. In our congregation, we have a Christmas Eve service. So on Christmas Eve, we light all four candles and also the Christ candle in the center. Advent really is very simple. It's got a simple meaning. If you were to look it up in the dictionary and see the name Advent, you would recognize that it basically means coming. So the church for generations now has looked back at the Old Testament scriptures and identified in the Old Testament scriptures references to Christ's coming that perhaps the people who first read the Old Testament scriptures didn't see. We read passages like from Isaiah primarily and other passages during the season of Advent. And today we remember not only Christ's first coming, but we anticipate his second coming. Where all the things that we light here on this table, this Advent candle, will be completely and fully fulfilled. But if you're to understand Advent well, it perhaps is necessary to understand the texts out of which Advent is often lifted. And today, the reading early on in our worship service came from Isaiah 40. What I'd like to do is give you a little bit more of that reading, a section that we didn't read that precedes the words that were read. Here's the words that were given to a group of people by Isaiah who were in captivity, known as the Babylonian captivity. People who had suffered this captivity heard these words in one way or another. His words are these. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard labor or service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It begins with a message of comfort, and and that's important, but it's also an honest message. You see, the author doesn't say, comfort my people, have joy, be happy, rejoice, because everything is well, and you're good. No, he doesn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, he says, 
you're in captivity. And the reason you're in captivity is not because you're good. The reason you're in captivity is because you have become enslaved by people because you walked away from me. In other words, your sin of turning to idols and turning away from me has created the captivity that you now live in. So he says, very honestly, you're in captivity and it's your own fault. But I have a message of hope for you. I want you to be comforted with these words because I, the Lord, have said to you and am saying to those who held, hold you captive, it's finished. The punishment is over. You know, notice the difference between punishment and a destructive hand. If God had intended to destroy the people, he could have. But he didn't. He didn't say, I will destroy you. He said, you will be punished because you haven't followed me. And punishment is always for the purpose of restoration. Or to put it another way, punishment is because of love. I remember being a parent of small children, and that theme never seemed to sink in, correct? I remember being a child myself, and the theme never seemed to sink in. You understand that theme and how it's so hard to believe. But punishment is for our own good. Our parents punish us to keep us in the proper place. Our parents punish us so that we don't go too far down a disastrous road that could be destructive to us and to others. And God says to the people of Israel, this was for your own good. But I want you to be comforted with these words because restoration is coming. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. He continues by announcing it this way. He says, a voice of one calling in a desert place, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. In other words, the road's going to be straightened. It won't wind around through the hills. It'll just go straight. But how's it going to go straight through the hills? Because, says the author, every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be made low. And the rough places, well, they'll become like level ground. The rugged places, like a plain. I'm going to take a bumpy road, a curvy road, a road that's difficult for travelers, and I'm going to flatten the whole thing. And I'm doing that so that you can prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, that must have been wonderful news to people in captivity. Eventually, of course, they're restored from Babylon and they return to Jerusalem. But the wonderful news to the people in captivity was only part of the story. As the early church fathers began to realize, these words related to the coming of Jesus as well. They were not just about a historical episode where the people were caught in captivity. They were about the coming of Jesus in the future. So they use these texts and they remind us of those texts at Advent. And they say... Read them and remind yourselves of what Isaiah 40 was really all about. Not just a historical episode that was ancient, but a contemporary one where Christ has come. Stepping into that tradition, you see, you enter the New Testament and you're introduced to a man called John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist steps into these very words, these words, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. And in effect, he and the others say, John the Baptist is the second Isaiah. He steps into these words because these words were prepared for him to declare. He's speaking Isaiah's words, announcing the coming of the Lord. The one who's king of kings and Lord of lords. So John steps into those words and uses them. And what does he say to the people? I want you to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And how do I want you to prepare for the coming of the Lord? Very simply. Very, very simple. And extremely difficult. I want you to confess your sins. I want you to utter the words, says John, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of grace. How are we supposed to do that? The people say. John gives all kinds of instructions concerning contemporary events in the lives of these people. And he says, repent of this, repent of this, and repay. We can make the application in various ways to our lives. It wouldn't be the same that John delivered to them in the first century. But in effect, it would be. In order to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, you've got to confess your sins in order to place yourself in a position to receive God's grace. You need to understand your own sinfulness. By the way, um, this is one of the most difficult doctrines of the Christian faith for many people to accept. You weren't born into this world righteous. You weren't born into this world loving God. Your every waking moment since you were an infant was not how can I serve God? It was how can I serve me? You and I are self-centered creatures. We're inward looking. We're twisted inward. That's the nature of sin, to be twisted inward. Don't think of it as activities, although there are sinful activities. Think of it as inward twistedness. God says in order to be redeemed from your inward twistedness, which routinely leads you away from me, you must confess your sins and prepare the way of the Lord. You will not receive the grace of Jesus Christ unless you first recognize and do that. That's the good news. The Lord's going to restore for those who confess. But here's the second bit of good news. The second bit of good news is the portion that was read. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. As I read that passage, I think of two things immediately from my life. Uh, The church that I pastored before coming here 15 years ago was First Baptist New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, an entirely different sanctuary, as I've mentioned before. The entire sanctuary, built in 1904, was wrapped in stained glass windows. 
so beautiful, in fact, that people from all over the city would just come by and look. Routinely, as I was in my office, there'd be a knock at the door and people would say, can I just look inside? You know, because you can't tell what stained glass is really like except from the inside out. Because the light comes through those stained glass windows and it just illuminates in all kinds of beauty. If I were at First Baptist this morning preaching, directly behind me would be a gigantic, I mean gigantic, stained glass window with Jesus depicted as the good shepherd with a staff and with a small lamb in his arm close to his chest. That's the first image that comes to mind when I read this passage. Jesus, the good shepherd. But there's a second image that comes to mind. When I read this passage, it's an image, not just of Jesus, which combines the two things I'm about to mention, but it's an image that brings power and strength into the hands of, embodied by, also a person who's gentle. Think for a moment. What's the first thing you think of when you think of a mighty arm and power? It might be brute force. It could even be abuse. Or perhaps a powerful dictator who has everything his way for his own purposes. The prophet Isaiah says, the Lord is coming. And he's got every bit of strength that's available to the entire universe. And his strong and mighty arm. But that strong and mighty arm is also a gentle shepherd. I realize that I'm a blessed individual in terms of my understanding of God from childhood. It was taught to me as a young child that God was good, that His love endures forever. And I routinely heard the phrase, God as your loving Heavenly Father. As I grew older, I realized not everyone had an earthly image of a father that was like mine. Because my earthly memory and image of a father as a tiny little boy is a large six-foot-two gentleman who had plenty of strength, plenty of power to protect me from all harm. But the strength and power in those big hands and big arms held me close to his chest. When I was with my father as a child, I know it was a little unrealistic, but I thought nothing could harm me. Why? Because all the power of my father was never, ever used against me or my brothers or my mother in a harmful way. Not once. He was full of strength and equally full of gentleness. So I read this passage and I say to myself, 
That's my God. Except He's eternal. And He's almighty. And He's got the power of all the universe in His hand because He created the whole thing. That strong-armed Savior is also my gentle shepherd. And that strong-armed Savior calls me to repent so that I can receive Him in His fullness. And I realize I'll never understand the depths of His love until I understand the sinfulness of my own heart. Because only then can I understand grace. Otherwise, there's no need of it. What purpose is there of grace if you're okay the way you are? But God says, I have some comforting words for you. I want you to prepare the way of the Lord. And as John says, I want you to repent. I want you to receive that strong-armed, mighty, and gentle, loving shepherd. I said the church has looked at this passage for centuries and seen a prediction concerning the coming of Jesus in it. But the church identifying the image of shepherd in other passages of Scripture has also tied together this notion of this strong-armed shepherd and found in the words of Jesus the perfect fulfillment. When in John chapter 10, Jesus said to those who would follow Him, the disciples who were in His presence, and anyone who would follow after, I want you to understand the heart of who I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the strong-armed gentle shepherd. And what's characteristic of the good shepherd? Well, there's a lot of things, but just three of them to call to your attention. The good shepherd knows his sheep by name. I think it's fascinating that after this reference to the shepherd in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, by the time you get to 49, you hear a reference to God that goes like this. Isaiah says, God has got your name inscribed on the palm of his hand. (laughs) Talk about knowing you. You're right there in his almighty hand. Jesus says it in another way. He says, I want you to understand, I know you. I know you completely. As a matter of fact, I know you so thoroughly that I have the very head, hair of your heads counted. That's more remarkable for some people than for others. But no matter. If you add them all together, are you kidding me? No, if you make it intimate, are you kidding me? It's an image that God knows you completely inside and out, hair follicles and all. I know you by name. I know you personally. What what we know of good shepherds in first century Palestine is that the shepherds knew their sheep. And as Jesus said, the sheep also knew their shepherd. I read a story about two shepherds in Palestine Uh, by an author who was touring that area that is often called the Holy Land and observing things so as to be a better interpreter of the biblical text. And he said, I watched two shepherds stand outside a cave. Their sheep had gone inside the cave and they stood on the outside. And when it was time to go, both of the shepherds simply gave a call 
The call was a strange kind of warbling sound, he said. It was odd and I wouldn't have understood what it meant. And he said the sheep came out of the cave and one by one turned to the right and turned to the left to their own individual shepherd who made a strange warbling sound with his voice. They knew his voice and they followed him right out of the cave. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice and I know them. Second thing we know about the good shepherd is that he provides for his sheep. Uh, Correlatively, what we know about sheep is they don't provide for themselves. They're very dumb animals and they do not have the capacity to provide for themselves. They have the capacity to walk into harm's way primarily, but the shepherd provides for the sheep. And especially in that region of the country, you didn't have large sheep farms with great big fences and endless green pastures. You had shepherds who took sheep to green pastures and they found it for the sheep because the sheep would otherwise starve. And they took those sheep to other places like water. So they were always on a journey, always led by the shepherd. Which brings to mind probably a passage you could quote, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. Why? Because I couldn't find the pastures on my own. Why? Because he knows I just do not have the courage to drink out of a fast-moving stream He restores my soul. He doesn't just satisfy my outward needs. He restores the inner part of me. That's what my good shepherd does. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I wouldn't go in paths of righteousness for my name's sake because I'm inclined to go in paths that are not righteous. But my good shepherd inclines me towards those paths of righteousness for his name's sake so that my life actually glorifies him. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Even though the world caves in around me, even though my comforts are gone, even though hostility is everywhere, even though life seems to snuff out life, even in those moments, you're with me. And in those moments, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff were used for a variety of things. Uh, One thing was to reach out with the crooked end and pull a sheep back away from harm's way. But they were also used as a weapon against those who were predators for the sheep. So those objects are both comforting and those objects are to be feared, but used in a fearful way against the enemies. Remember the passage where David is in front of King Saul? And he's trying to convince him that he can go after Goliath. And he has in his hand a shepherd's sling and stones. And he says to King Saul, let me tell you about my life with sheep. I understand what it means to be a shepherd. I've rescued my sheep from the paw of the bear and the lion. Maybe using some of these objects. That's why he writes Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He goes on, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I get more than I deserve. You know, there are times where you can walk through hostility with people who have it in for you. And it can seem as though you'll be destroyed. Perhaps by false accusations. Perhaps just because they hate you. There are times like that in life. I recall times like that, not myself only, but from hearing those stories from you. And this past week, a person told me that during a time like that, where it seemed that enemies were all around them, trying to do harm and destroy them, they found incredible comfort in Psalm 118. That God would be with them and protect them in the midst of all of that. As a matter of fact, the person said, I read it and clung to it as a promise every day. This person now has a story of delight and being able to look back at the goodness of God in the midst of those dark days. That person would tell you that God, unbeknownst to them, was protecting them in multiple ways and now is preparing a table in the presence of their enemy. Why? Because they trusted their good shepherd. Not because it seemed the good shepherd was always there, but because they refused to believe that good shepherd would desert them. That is our good shepherd. He knows our name. He protects us from evil. He provides our needs. You know, there were even stories of shepherds that lost their life in protecting their sheep. They tried to protect them against predators, and the predators, unlike the story of David, got the best of the shepherd, and they were killed. And then, of course, the sheep were killed in kind. When we think about Jesus in that context, we've got to remember that something dramatically different happened. When Jesus came as the good shepherd, he didn't just sacrificially lay down his life for his sheep. He did that. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 10, he said he was going to do that long before he did it. And I wonder what the disciples were thinking when he mentioned that a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus did lay down his life for his sheep, the sacrificial atonement, as we call it. But if we stop there, we've done real injustice to the nature of the sacrifice itself. It wasn't just some kind of shepherd sacrifice. It was the heart of the gospel itself, which is the beginning of the restoration of all things. In that moment of death, followed by the moment of resurrection, Jesus Christ pronounced death to death. And He said it will not reign forever. 
For those who follow me, in spite of death, they will experience life. And furthermore, because of my resurrection, because I literally died in my body and was raised again in my body, so this whole creation, which groans continuously under the weight of sin, will someday be restored just as I was raised from the dead. Jesus says, follow me and you can be a part of that. It's not just about you. It's about the whole world. Come join the Good Shepherd. I, um, I have a question though that goes back to what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they know me. My question is, do you really know the shepherd? Not about the shepherd. Really, do you know the shepherd? Have you approached the shepherd and admitted who you are? Have you said, Lord Jesus, I'm in as much trouble, I am as deeply flawed as the people who were punished in Babylon and more. And I have no shred of hope for goodness or eternal life unless you rescue me. Have you been there? That's the first step to knowing the shepherd. Because when you get to that place, you realize your deep need of rescue. Then you understand this candle, the candle of love. Greater love has no man than this, said Jesus, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends. I know you. Do you know me? I can't think of a better time of the year to answer that question in the affirmative than now. To remind ourselves that the Good Shepherd laid down his life for his sheep and we're one of them. And to remind ourselves that we know him and we ought to know him better or for you for the first time. To recognize that you know about the Good Shepherd, but you don't really know Him. And take the opportunity this season to confess who you are so that you can get to know Him. If you were about to enter a relationship, a relationship you'd like to build with someone else, would you conceive of trying to enter that relationship without telling them who you are? Probably not. When you enter a relationship with a good shepherd, you've got to tell him, admit who you are, and then the relationship can grow. Now that is a Christmas story. It's not just about a sweet little baby Jesus. It's about the Jesus who came as a baby who offers forgiveness of sins to all who repent 
and who promises to restore everything to the way it ought to be. I hope you know that Jesus. If you don't, let's meet him today. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word, um, for the stories in your word, for the prophecies that really are veiled in mystery until um, other parts of Scripture illuminate them for us. And in this case, uh, those mysterious prophecies of Isaiah take on a new meaning beyond their historical episode when we reflect on them in light of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you will allow us to see ourselves for who we are in this Christmas season. Uh, For those of us who have claimed you as our Lord, that you'll remind us of the great love that you have for us and that you will uh, once again uh, remind us of our continued need for confession of our sins and restoration and uh, complete and full relationship with you. For those who are here today that don't know you, they only know about you, they've only perhaps stepped through the proper processes, uh, read some of the proper texts, believed some of the proper things, but they've never stood before you and admitted uh, who they are someone who's thoroughly sinful and needs your redemption. We pray that this Christmas season will be that place at which they kneel before you and acknowledge who they are and receive your grace and forgiveness. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.